Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 32, The Life and Death of Mary Jane Kelly, part one. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today is Ben Holm from Penshurst, Kent in the UK. Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Chris Scott is in Ramsgate, Kent in the UK. Paul Begg is in Maidstone, Kent in the UK. And Gareth Williams is coming to us from Neath in Wales. Thanks everyone for joining me today on the 120th anniversary of the death of Mary Jane Kelly. Her body was discovered on this date in 1888 in the room she occupied in Miller's Court, Dorset Street, now Duval Street, Spitalfields, London. Robert McLaughlin, will you treat us to a bit of the historical background of Mary Kelly? Robert? What we know of uh, the life of Mary Jane Kelly comes principally from her lover, Joseph Barnett, and a few other people who made statements to the press uh, after her murder. Up until the final couple of years of uh, Mary's life, nothing about her history can be substantiated. It's an alleged history. But rather than qualify every sentence with that word alleged, I'll just state it as fact, and we can go over the points and discuss them uh, later on. Uh, Mary Jane Kelly was born around 1863 in either the town or the county of Limerick, Ireland. She had six brothers and one sister, and we don't know where Mary fell in the birth order. Uh, The Kellys were said to be well off, and as a young child, Mary Jane and family moved to Wales. Uh, Gareth will speak more about the Welsh connections later on. Uh, Mary Jane's father got a job at the ironworks. Her sister lived with an aunt and traveled from market to market. One of her brothers served in the 2nd Battalion Scots Guard. He is known variously as Henry Kelly, John, or Jonto. Uh, Mary Kelly's mother remains a shadowy figure, of which no mention was made at the time. Uh, when Mary was around 16, she married a collier named Davis, or Davies, who was killed in an explosion a couple of years after the nuptials. After that, the young widow moved to Cardiff to live with a cousin. This cousin may be responsible for leading Mary into a life of prostitution. Now, Mary spent about eight or nine months in a Cardiff infirmary for an unspecified reason. Uh, This takes us to around 1884, and it's around this time that Mary moved to London. She stayed for a while at a brothel in the West End. Uh, Sometime after this, she accompanied a gentleman to France. Mary didn't like the place and returned a fortnight later. Uh, She ends up in the East End in the Ratcliffe Highway area with a Mrs. Buki who accompanied Kelly to Knightsbridge to uh, recover some of Mary's clothing. Not long after this, she moves a short distance to uh, Mrs. Carthy's in Breezers Hill. Now, before Mary meets up with uh, Joe Barnett, uh, she's associated with two other men. Uh, The first man being called Morganstone, or some variation of that name like Morgan Stern or Morgan Stein. Uh, He lived near the Stepney Gasworks. The other man is a plaster named Joseph Fleming in Bethnal Green Road. Um, And even according to uh, Joe Barnett and Julia Venturi, she was quite fond of this other Joe. Now, Mary Kelly and Joe Barnett meet for the first time in a pub in Commercial Street around Easter of 1887. Uh, They meet again the next day. Barnett takes lodgings in George Street off of Commercial Street, and Kelly moves in with them. Uh, They lived at Little Paternaster Row off Dorset Street and left that place owing rent. They went to Brick Lane before ending up in Miller's Court, Dorset Street, sometime between January and March of 1888. Uh, their weekly rent was four shillings and sixpence for their little 12-foot square room, and their landlord, John McCarthy, ran the Chandler shop at number 27. Uh, the court was reached through an archway between numbers 26, also owned by McCarthy, and number 27. Uh, Barnett was a porter at the Billingsgate uh, market, and he lost his job sometime during the summer of 1888. Uh, we don't know if Mary Kelly prostituted herself before Joe lost his job, uh, but she certainly did after. 
uh, they managed to accrue 29 shillings in uh, back rent uh, by the time of her murder. On October 30th, uh, Joe and Mary had a fight about another woman. She was about other women, actually. She was allowing to stay in the room. Two window panes were broken, and the key to the door was lost around that time. Uh, Barnett moved out, uh, taking lodgers, uh, taking lodgings at uh, Buller's Lodging House in New Street, uh, Bishopsgate. Uh, Joe said that uh, after he moved out, he would bring Mary Jane uh, what money he could. Uh, it probably didn't amount to much as he was relying on temporary and casual work. Uh, Mary continued to allow other women to stay there. Uh, Maria Harvey slept over a few times. And on uh, November 8th, uh, she spent the afternoon with Kelly, uh, leaving behind some items of clothing and a pawn ticket. Uh, that evening, a friend and fellow resident of Miller's Court, Lizzie Albrook, visited with Mary Kelly at number 13. Uh, Kelly said to Lizzie when she left, whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I have. Joe Barnett dropped by while Lizzie Albrook was there. He told her he had no money to give her, and they parted on good terms at about quarter to eight. At a quarter to twelve, uh, Marianne Cox, a prostitute living at number five, Miller's Court, saw Mary Kelly enter the court with a man who had a blotchy face and a carroty mustache, and he was wearing a billycock hat and carrying a quart pail of beer. He's about 36 years of age. Uh, they exchanged good nights, and Mary said she was going to have a song. A while later, Cox went out, and Mary was singing, and she returned at 1 a.m., and Mary Kelly was still singing. And the light was still on. At about half past one, Elizabeth Prater, who lived upstairs from Mary Kelly at uh, number 20 Miller's Court, uh, returned home. She heard no singing and saw no light, and she went to bed. Uh, this takes us to about 2 o'clock in the morning and the arrival of a controversial witness, uh, George Hutchinson. Hutchinson uh, went to the Commercial Street Police Station after the inquest on November 12th, three days after Mary Kelly's murder, and gave his remarkably detailed statement. He also repeated the story to the press. Uh, this is what he said. He passed Thrall Street, and just before Flower and Dean Street, he met up with Kelly. Uh, Will you lend me a sixpence, she asked him, and he said, I can't, I spent all my money going down to Romford. She said, good night, I must go and find some money, and continued on toward Thrall Street. Hutchinson then, then saw a man approach from the opposite direction. He tapped uh, Kelly on the shoulder, saying something. They both started laughing. Kelly said, all right. The man then said, you'll be all right for what I've told you. He put his right hand on her shoulder, and in his left hand, he was carrying some type of small parcel, American cloth, with a strap around it. Hutchinson stood against the lamppost outside the Queen's Head public house, and he continued to watch Kelly and the man as they walked up Commercial Street. As they passed, the man put his head down and his hat over his eyes. The man was Jewish-looking, respectable in appearance. He had a long coat with an African collar and cuffs, dark jacket and trousers, light waistcoat, dark felt hat turned up down in the middle, uh, lined collar, black tie with a horseshoe pin, button boots, gaiters, and a white button, thick gold watch chain, and a red stone seal. He was 34, 35 years of age, 5 foot 6 inches tall, pale complexion, dark hair and eyelashes, slight mustache curled up at each end. Hutchinson stooped down to see the man's face. The man sternly looked back. And Kelly went on into Dorset Street, and Hutchinson followed them. Kelly and the man stood at the corner of the court. The man said something, and Kelly replied, All right, my dear, come along, and you'll be comfortable. The man then placed an arm on his shoulder, gave her a kiss. I seem to have lost my handkerchief, Kelly said. The man then pulled out a red one and gave it to her. Uh, Kelly and the man went up the court. Uh, Hutchinson stood across the street, and he waited uh, until about 3 o'clock in the morning for about 45 minutes, according to him, uh, but the man never came out, and then he left. Now, at about 2.30 in the morning, Sarah Lewis, uh, she goes into Dorset Street, and she sees a stout but not very tall man with a black wide-awake hat standing across from the entrance to Miller's Court. Now, that man might be George Hutchison. Uh, she went to number two, 
uh, Miller's Court, uh, which is where the Keelers lived. And they lived across from Mary Kelly. And at about 3.45 a.m., uh, she hears the cry of murder. Uh, somewhere around that same time, Elizabeth Prater is awakened by her cat Diddles and hears a faint cry of, oh, murder, coming from the court. Neither woman does anything about it. Now, nobody sees any man come or go from Miller's court uh, at, at late night and early into the morning, uh, right up until the time uh, Mary's Kelly, Mary Kelly's body was discovered. Now, we get to another interesting and controversial witness in Carolyn Maxwell. Uh, the police and doctors at the time, and indeed most modern uh, Ripper researchers of the case, place Kelly's time of death at anywhere between about 1 and 4 a.m. Yet Mrs. Maxwell claimed to have seen Mary twice after that. Uh, between 8 and 8.30, she spoke with Mary across the street, that being Dorset Street, and asked her, Mary, what brings you up so early? Kelly replied, oh, Carrie, I feel so bad. I've had a glass of beer and brought it up again. Uh, Maxwell uh, said she felt for her and that she said she had to go fetch her husband's breakfast. Uh, later on that morning at about 10, 10 a.m., uh, Maxwell said she saw Kelly outside the Britannia uh, talking to a stout man in a plaid coat. Uh, Maurice Lewis also said he saw Kelly in the Britannia at 10 a.m., but he's even a more controversial witness than Maxwell. Uh, Maxwell didn't speak to Kelly the second time. She stuck to her story, though, even after being cautioned at the inquest by Coroner MacDonald. Uh, Maxwell claimed to have known Mary for about four months and that they'd spoken on a couple of occasions and that she was not mistaken about the time or the date. Now, this takes us to the discovery of uh, Mary Jane's body. Now, at 10.45 a.m., Thomas Bowyer, he was employed by John McCarthy, was asked to, uh, to collect the rent uh, from number 13. He knocks on Kelly's door and he receives no response. He goes around the corner to the broken window pane and he pulls back a coat or something similar that's being used as a curtain and he sees the mutilated remains of uh, Mary Jane Kelly on the bed. Uh, Bowyer tells McCarthy of his discovery. Inspector Beck is fetched from Commercial Street Police Station and he arrives with constables just after 11 a.m. Beck sends for Dr. Phillips and he also sends dispatches for inspectors Aberline and Reed. Miller's court is sealed with no one allowed to leave and only authorized persons allowed entrance. Uh, Dr. Phillips arrives at around 11.15 a.m. He has a look through the window, and he states the obvious that there's nothing he can do for the victim. Uh, doctors Bond, Gabe, and Brown, they arrive in due course. And Inspector Aberline, he arrives at 11.30 a.m. A photographer, Joseph Martin, is sent for. Uh, Inspector Charles Ledger of G Division Finsbury is brought to Miller's Court uh, to draw up plans of the murder site, uh, just as Frederick Foster did for the Catherine Eddowes murder. Uh, they were presented at the inquest, but sadly do not survive. Uh, the Bloodhounds, Barnaby and Burgo, are requested. And Superintendent Arnold, he arrives around 1.30 uh, p.m. to inform everyone that the Bloodhounds are not coming. Arnold shows up because Commissioner Warren had resigned on the previous day, November 8th. Arnold orders the door to be forced open, and John McCarthy levers it open with an axe. The doctors enter the room. Bond and Phillips make a cursory examination. Aberline and company have a look around, and many photographs are taken. Uh, by Joseph Martin, of which two have survived. Now, both Aberline and Reed make an inventory of the room. Sadly, neither list survives. Aberline notices that some clothing has been burned in the fireplace, and the spout of the kettle has melted. Assistant Commissioner Robert uh, Anderson arrives by cab at about 1.50 p.m. and stays for some time. Now, Mary's Kelly, Mary Kelly's body is eventually removed to Shoreditch Mortuary, just after 4 p.m. The room is boarded and locked, and a short time later... Uh, policemen are posted at the entrance of Miller's Court to keep the curious away. Now, according to Sarah Lewis's inquest testimony, she leaves the Keeler's flat at 5.30 p.m. 
and that's when the police allowed the occupants to leave Miller's Court. By this time, all would have been questioned and the initial search is concluded. Uh, post-mortem on Carrie, uh, Mary Kelly was performed later that day. Uh, Dr. Bond, Dr. Brown, Dr. Phillips, and uh, a couple others were present. Even though Dr. Bond uh, states the time of death between 1 and 2 a.m. in his home office report, he also says it's difficult to say with any degree of certainty the exact time that elapsed since death as the period varies from 6 to 12 hours before rigidity sets in. No autopsy reports have survived, but Dr. Bond's notes that he made at the time were returned anonymously in, 18, in 1987. Included in these notes is the following information. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two square feet. Uh, the wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in a number of several splashes. Uh, the whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, and the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all down to all round down to the bone. Uh, the viscera were found in various parts: the uterus and kidneys, with one breast under her head, the other breast by her right foot, the liver between the feet the intestines by the right side of her body, and the spleen by the left side. Uh, the flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on the table, and the heart was absent. Uh, Joseph Barnett identified Mary Kelly's remains by either the ear or eyes, or her hair in her eyes. There's some discrepancy about that. And also the name on her death certificate is Marie Jeanette Kelly. Now, Joe Barnett calls her this, yet all other witnesses refer to her as Mary Jane. It's probable that Joe registered her death. Uh, Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest on November 19, 1888, at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leytonstone. And to this day, her identity is much of, is much of an enigma as the man who murdered her. Uh, Jonathan? Thanks, Robert. Uh, identifying the real Mary Kelly in the various records, censuses, workhouse, infirmary, and court documents has proven elusive. Um, Gareth, you had recently written about the number of Mary Kellys that exist in the written records, mm-hmm. and, and um, Chris Scott has also uh, been diligently researching this topic uh, of all the numerous Mary Kellys. Either one of you, uh, I'll start with you, Gareth. Uh, can we discuss Mary Kelly, Mary Jane Kelly, in terms of the numbers uh, that confront researchers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this question, there's a kind of a school of thought in, in, in Ripperology that um, if, if you take the entire contents of the census and pare it down to a reasonable, manageable uh, number, you can sort of stick a pin in the list and uh, maybe identify people. Um, but you're really up against it when you come to um, Mary Kelly's because it was a rather common name. Um, I believe in London, in, in both censuses of 1881 um, and 1891, just to take an average between them, you're looking at in excess of 250 uh, women by the name of Mary Kelly living in uh, the London area. Um, most of them uh, being of Irish, uh, sorry, most of them living in the poorer parts of, uh, of London, but not necessarily the East End. Um, and maybe about 50 or 60 in, in either census who were actually living in, in the East End and who were born in London, um, born in Ireland, I beg your pardon. So uh, that's the odds you're up against. Uh, you're talking about hundreds of potential Mary Kellys 
uh, living in the London area, uh, in the sorts of areas where our Mary Jane Kelly uh, was later to live and die. So it's a bit of a challenge pinning her down, even assuming that that was her real name. Um, and I know that Chris has done a hell of a lot of research uh, in this area, and um, maybe if I hand over to him, he can, he can give us a first-hand sort of experience of what he's been through. Chris? Uh, many sleepless many sleepless nights. Um, I think the first thing to explain is the limitations of the census, because unfortunately, as Rob so um, eloquently put it, and can I say it's a very good resume, um, the, the period, if it was Kelly who died in 1888 at Miller's Court, and she came to London in 1884, then logically we wouldn't expect her to appear in any London census, because she, the 1881 census would be too early, and she would presumably still be living in Wales, and by the 1891 census, obviously, she would be dead. So to look for Kelly, if there's any truth whatever in the Barnet account, even in its broad outlines, then logically you wouldn't expect to find Kelly in either census in London. So I think the only... And again, there's, there are all these very vague phrases. For example, Barnet says that the Kelly family with the young Mary Jane, moved to Wales when she was, quote, very young. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean three? Does it mean six? Does it mean eight? It depends on, for example, you know, would she be in Wales by the 1871 census when she would have been, if her age is correct, about eight years old? So you've got really only two censuses where you can realistically look for Kelly. That's 1871 and 1881, both of them presumably in Wales. Now, by the time of the 1881 census, again, if there's any truth in Barnett's account, she would have married in or about 1879, because he said that she married when she was 16, to a man called Davis, or Davies, a collier. Um, and he, it's the one point on which Barnett appears to give very specific information, because he makes uh, various points, as, almost as though he's labouring point, to, whether to defend Kelly's reputation or what, I don't know. But um, he says specifically that Kelly was her maiden name, and he also specifically says that she was legally married. So when you, when you come to research Kelly, that's the, the first thing you latch onto. You think, right, we've got a legal marriage in Wales in 1879 or thereabouts to a man who died... The accounts vary somewhere between one and three years later in this uh, mining explosion. But unfortunately, again, she married a man, allegedly, with one of the most Commonwealth surnames, <laughs> which, which was Davis or Davies. And in the initial account, Barnet is ambiguous as to whether it was with or without an E, but later he's more certain and, and he says he actually he thought it was Davies with an E. But yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, I've gone through the mine. I was just going to say on, the, on, on that point, actually, Chris, uh, before you get on to the mine explosions, um, in, in Wales we tend not to differentiate between uh, Davis and Davies. Uh, in, in other words, the Davies spelling is usually spelt, well, is usually pronounced exactly the same way as D-I-V-I-S, uh, but, but which you, is but odd. You have, but you have both variant spellings. We, we do, yeah. So it's, it's yeah. odd that Barnett <clears throat> seemed to have some doubt about whether it was one or the other, because uh, a Welsh person yes. would normally say Davis and, and, and have done with it, irrespective of yeah. the spelling. 
Well, again, so that, that, again that, yeah, that's that's uh, that's another contentious point because one point that does come up in small snippets of testimony is if if Kelly moved to Wales when she was quote very young, then what would her what, what would her accent have been? Was she, was she young enough that to have acquired a Welsh accent by the time she moved to London as she grew up there, or would she have already had set an Irish accent? Because there was one um, unnamed young woman. Um, who, who actually said that Kelly was Welsh and, and actually said that she spoke Welsh. Now, yes. I, think a po- I think that's a possible... One possible explanation of that is that, with no disrespect to the young ladies of the uh, East End at the time, but if, for example, Kelly spoke Gaelic-Irish and a young woman of... Um, uneducated Whitechapel background heard Kelly speaking that, then I think it's quite feasible it could be mistaken for Welsh, as they're both Celtic languages. I'm not saying they're that, co- they're that similar, but I think to an untutored ear, it would be hard to differentiate between the two. Good point. Um, but the, I think the, the, the whole nub of it, and again, you know, Rob summed it up really well, is the whole, just from the point of view of researching Kelly, you come back time and time and time again to Barnett's account, and really, as a researcher, you have to decide, is there any truth in it? Did she make it up? Did he make any of it up? Did he report it faithfully as Kelly told it to him? I mean, it's an incredibly detailed account. There's just so much in there that looks promising. And in fact, sadly, all of it leads nowhere. Whether it's the marriage connection or whether you're looking at the alleged date of her birth. I mean, people have found Mary Jane Kelly's born in Ireland in 1863 and early 1864 and so on and so forth. And then there are, I think we're so hung up on the name because I I have to nail my colours to the mast. I'm convinced that the answer to the conundrum is that she invented or assumed the name of Mary Jane Kelly. I don't think it was her birth name. In which case, I think the chances of finding her are virtually zero. But as that's the only name we've got, obviously people, including myself, have researched that, you know, almost to death. Um, I mean, only yesterday I found there was a, a, a young uh, Mary Jane Kelly living in Whitechapel in 1871 who was born in Limerick, and she was seven years old. So she's of almost exactly the right age, and, the right, and she was living with her mother called Margaret in uh, Chambers Street, uh, which is one I hadn't seen before. But again, you know, it's very easy to get excited about um, ones like that. There was an Irish Mary Kelly who married a man called Davis who was living in Shoreditch and so on and so forth. You know, there are um, A.P. Wolf founder Mary Kelly um, specifically described as a prostitute and of approximately the right age in the infirmary registers. So, you know, they're, they're, yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that there is, there is some vague corroboration, at least, of um, of. Kelly's story, as recounted by uh, Joe Barnett, um, in uh, you know we've got Mrs. Phoenix and Mrs. Carthy, yes, um, who uh, came forward. I think uh, on the was it the, their stories? I think are published in, in the papers of the tenth of November. So that's that's right. Um, they came came forward almost immediately, uh, I, and I think Miss, Mrs. Phoenix is, is 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 described specifically as coming forward with information yes. uh, yeah. about Kelly's time in. Uh, the Ratcliffe Highway, yeah, um, and, and, and 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 about the brothel in the West End. Yes, which which tallies, and, and I think Mrs. Phoenix and uh, and Carthy mention that 
Kelly that arrived in London about four years ago, whatever it is, uh, from Wales, uh, and, and that she was you know, still in touch with the family back there, or some of their, her, her acquaintances from back in, in Wales. So, and that's totally independent of Barnett's as yet unpublished inquest testimony. Yeah, there's one. Uh, there's one that there's one that puzzles me, and I th- I think it's a Mrs. Phoenix account, but there's one account by a, 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 an alleged previous landlady, who said that uh, Kelly had arrived three years earlier and said she looked about twenty two, and initially claimed to be Welsh. Yes, and Miss Miss Carthy, um, in the. Uh the newspaper you quote in your cast of thousands, Chris, is on uh, November 17th. Yes. Um, is quoted as saying that Kelly came to London from Cardiff five or six years prior to her death. Yes. Now, the, the one I'm talking about is Mrs. Uh, Phoenix. Yeah. Mrs. Phoenix appears in the star. I think the Mrs. Carthy story that you quoted there, John, comes from the Thanet advertiser. Right. The ble- bloody, bloody Kent people again. Um, exactly. <laughs> right. Now, this touches on a um, question that a listener um, sent in for us uh, to discuss, and that's kind of a little tangential, but Car- uh, Miss Carthy of Breezers Hill and um, Fiona Rule discussed this somewhat on the Dorset Street podcast, The Worst Street in London. But nevertheless, as I said, Chris wrote in his cast of thousands, quoting um, the Thanet. Advertiser, uh, which was a Kent newspaper, uh, that quote of Miss Miss Carthy um, saying that Kelly came to London from Cardiff five or six years prior to her death, and she describes Kelly as quote an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. Some of the biographical information Miss Carthy gives, like Gareth says, tallies with the statements of Barnett. Carthy states that Kelly had two false teeth which is a fact not mentioned in Bond's notes or at the inquest. Um, also, in describing her as a scholar, what, what, what do we think that that could mean? What should we think of Miss Carthy's description of Kelly? Uh, because I believe Barnett said that he had read press accounts to her, but then there are rumors of letters received by Mary Kelly, so it's, it seems like she was literate. Um, but what kind of excellent scholar, you know, has someone read newspapers to them? And, and is there any evidence that anyone knows of besides Carthy's quote that Kelly was well-educated and had artistic leanings? Or how are we exactly supposed to judge Ms. Carthy's um, statement? I think it's very hard to judge because, um, you know, all these disparate sources and you get fragments from one and then slight corroboration from another and then something completely different um i mean for example on the question on the question of literacy um i think if uh, i mean i've i've known couples who will sort of snuggle up on the sofa and one will read to the other i don't you know it's not necessarily it's almost a sort of um not a form of intimacy it's putting it too strongly but it's um i mean you know sometimes uh, years ago i mean my father would read uh, bits in the paper to my mother it doesn't mean she couldn't read it's just either she was doing something else and he was sort of updating her on the day's news. So I don't think you can necessarily take that one fact as meaning that Kelly was illiterate. Right, but I'm just also wondering, um, is is the November 17th account given by Carthy the earliest account that we have from her? Because if so, then this post-dates the inquest. 
So I wonder how much if 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 we should take everything that Carthy says as corroborating Barnett's testimony, or should we look at it somewhat more suspiciously in that she may have cribbed from Barnett's testimony? Car- as as Gareth said, certainly the, you know the Carthy account does appear earlier in other papers. Um, and also, there's again, there's little bits added. In fact, I posted a bit yesterday because there's this very mysterious incident, which has always intrigued me. About um, well, at the end of the McCarthy statement, she says that, um, and again, it's one of these infuriatingly vague terms. Mrs. Carthy says that a short time before the murder, whatever that means, whether it means days or months or weeks, um, that Kelly turned up on her doorstep at two o'clock in the morning. This is in Breezes Hill, which is a, quite a considerable distance from Miller's Court. And obviously Kelly was already living at Miller's Court because it was not long before the murder. And Kelly turned up on the doorstep at 2 a.m. of uh, Mrs. Carthy's with an unknown man and asked for a bed for the night. Now, um, in fact, I posted a little bit about it yesterday because I've always been intrigued as to, you know, why Kelly would go that considerable distance um, how long before the murder was it? And I think the one you can eliminate was Joseph Fleming, because from the way the, the Mrs. Carthy account is phrased, it uh, certainly suggests that she knew Joseph Fleming and she knew about the relationship between Fleming and Kelly. But I can't think it was Barnett, because why on earth would, you know, if Barnett and uh, Kelly had a roof over their head at Miller's Court, why would they walk all the way to Breezes Hill at two o'clock in the morning? And then there's one other, there's one variant account. Because the, the Thanet advertiser account just leaves it hanging. She doesn't say well, you know, what the reaction was. But then I found another account since, which then goes on to say that she did actually give them a bed for the night and charged them two shillings. So Kelly, for some unknown reason and with an unknown man, um, stayed for a night with Mrs. Carthy uh, not long before the murder. But again, reasons unknown, and, and we don't know who the man was. And a last point on, on this um, census um and, and trying to identify uh, the correct Mary Jane Kelly. Um, and this is another question that comes from a listener, is um, that uh, a poster to the blog, uh, uh, the podcast blog, brought up the record of a Liverpool Mary Kelly. And it um, has been discussed on the German Ripper site, jacktheripper.de. And Chris, I believe you looked into this, and this this was a case of a... Uh, Mary Jane Kelly that did appear in the 1881 census. Uh, I'm if- afraid I, th- I think it's a blind alley on two scores. One, one, of, the, uh, one of the supposed clues was a, an alleged similarity between the pronunciation of Liverpool and Limerick, which I, I find tenuous at best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- therefore, instead of Kelly saying she'd come from Limerick, she would have said she came from Liverpool. Obviously, there was a very large Irish community because, I mean, it was the nearest major port to Ireland. Um, and it was, the, the, you know, the point of landing, I would imagine, for most Irish immigrants. But the, I think the one that uh, knocks it on the head was, I was after I'd um, sent you the info from that thread, I was doing some digging around last night. And this particular Mary Jane Kelly married a man called um, Robert Wilson, who was a baker, and they're listed in Liverpool in the 1881 census. I'm also pretty confident that I found them both in the 1891 census. He's still listed as a baker, um, and his wife, Mary, um, is still with him. So I think it looks very much as though both were still alive, but they were actually listed in 1891 as living in Everton, which obviously is part of Liverpool. But um, uh, I'm pretty certain it's the same couple. 
Yeah, there's, uh, I found another Mary actually in Liverpool um, a, a while back, Chris, you may remember, uh, living in uh, Halkett Street in, in Llandarf in Cardiff, yeah. uh, which is intriguing for uh, a rather odd reason, which I'll sort of elaborate now. Um, Robert earlier sort of in his intro said I'd uh, I'd throw in a few sort of snippets of of Welsh Connection stuff and um, one of the things that's always (coughs) intrigued me is uh, Barnett's uh, statement that uh, he believed that Kelly came from uh, Carnarvon or Carmarthen but he wasn't quite sure Um, there's a similar sort of sound between those two uh, place names, at least when they're pronounced in the in, in, in the non-Welsh uh, way, which is Carmarthen and Carnarvon. Um, there is another place um, called Cumavon, uh, just near Blaenavon in uh, Monmouthshire. Um, and uh, Cumavon, uh, or, or to pronounce uh, to pronounce it in its, uh, in its non-authentic manner, is pronounced Carmarthen. Um, and there's, there's this similarity be- between Carmarthen, Carmarthen and Carnarvon that I think may have caused some of the confusion in the first place. Uh, it's particularly noticeable if you look at the number of people from Ireland who actually settled in uh, those different areas um, uh, in, in the latter half of the 19th century following the potato famine. Uh, Irish people sort of left Ireland looking for, for jobs in industry and there was a, a heck of a lot of heavy industry particularly in the coal, steel and iron industries uh, going on in Wales at the time. And when you look at Carmarthenshire which has been uh, raised as a possibility uh, uh, in, in terms of it being the most authentic place that Kelly could have gone because of the coal mine connection I think Paul made this in one of his books and uh, you know Paul, uh, Paul Begg um, you rightly say that you know the south was where the coal mines were, so Carmarthen, being in the south, uh, would seem to be the most logical place for for Kelly to have gone uh, to meet a miner. Anyway, but the thing is, there weren't that many Irish in Carmarthenshire uh, at any time. Uh, it, it remained a fairly sort of parochial Welsh borough uh, or Welsh county. Um, and if you look at various censuses, I think the biggest amount of Irish in Carmarthenshire I can find uh, only adds up to one quarter of one percent at any given time. So it's extremely unlikely uh, that you know Kelly and her clan would have had stumps and, and landed in Carmarthen. If you look at Carnarvonshire then, which is in North Wales, where you don't find any iron industry of, 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 of any description, you certainly don't find too much in the way of coal mines or steelworks, um, that's only one half of 1% Irish settlers. It's when you come down south and you look at places like Swansea and Cardiff and Merthyr uh, where you know, a lot of the, the steel uh, and, and, and coal and iron industries were based that you start getting into interesting sort of percentages. Um, so, for example, 2.3% of uh, the Irish in, of, of the, the people living in Swansea, sorry, in the 1881 census were Irish-born. Uh, it goes up to 4% in Cardiff. It goes up to 5% in Merthyr, where there was a, a large concentration of, of, of steel and, uh, and ironworks at that time. <laughs> it's when you get into Monmouthshire, it starts to get interesting. Um, you're up to 2% of, of the Irish in, in, uh, uh, settled in Monmouthshire, um, which is where Comavon is, is based. So I was looking at this and kind of thinking, well, there may be a case for tying Kelly to Comavon that is Comavon in Monmouthshire, 
which is where one of the largest iron works uh, in the latter half of the 19th century was, was situated. Uh, that would be the Varteg works near, near Blynavon, which is only 15 miles away from Bedwesley in Monmouthshire, where uh, Chris Scott, uh, a number of years ago now, uh, found a whole nest, if you like, of, of, of Kellys, uh, a number of whom came from Limerick. So the, the, there is a strange connection there. And to sort of tie that back to my earlier point about this, this Mary Kelly, allegedly born in Liverpool, um, turning up in Cardiff, um, in the 1861 census in Halkett Street in Llandarf, which was a, a desperately poor area um, n- near the Cardiff docks, uh, we find a Daniel Kel- Kelly who's listed as a marine store dealer uh, and his family, in- including a number of daughters and a son called Dennis. Um, and uh, his middle daughter was called Mary and she was, she was six years old at that time. Um, and there's this whole clan of them living in, in, in Halkett Street in Llandarf. Now, the family splits up uh, by the 1871 um, census, and you find that Den- uh, uh, Dan Kelly, now the, the, the father of this marine store dealer, is living in Monmouth in Bedwesty. He's still listed as a marine uh, store dealer, which was basically selling iron goods. Uh, and his son, Dennis, is there with him, and one of his daughters, Elizabeth. Uh, the other daughters seem to be uh, located at the Cardiff Union School, which, which was where, sort of, if you like, delinquent kids or kids from broken families were, uh, were boarded, uh, while their family, family I presume, sorted their, their problems out. Um, so I was, I was intrigued. It was only today when I was going through the, the relative percentages of the Irish in different parts of Wales that I found this link, if you like, between Monmouthshire, Bedwesty, and this potential uh, Mary, Mary Kelly uh, in, in Cardiff. So I mean, I'll pass the details on to Chris, but um, just bear that in mind that Carmarthen and Carnarvon are possibly not the only two uh, locations that uh, Joe Barnett heard when he told his story. Again, it goes back to, because, I mean, obviously, Barnett would have picked this info up from Kelly. So, again, it goes back to this point, which may seem a very niggling one, um, as to how, how pure or hybrid an accent Kelly had. Because, we, as I said, we don't know how old she was when the family moved to Wales. So, if she, let's say she was six or seven, then presumably she would have already had a, a very well-established Irish accent. What, what I'm saying is, you know, we don't know how hybridised or purely Welsh the... the uh, pronunciations she said to um, Barnet were. I mean, if she she if she'd been saying those place names with a strong Irish accent, I mean, it may throw a different light on it. C- can I just add one final point on this, um, which may lead on to another sort of burning question, which is um, why none of the family came forward? Because obviously the the death was exceedingly well publicised not only nationally but internationally. And obviously this account of Barnett's was uh, published even in provincial papers. So if, the, you know, if, if an account that detailed of her life were published, presumably if her family were out there and the name was Kelly, it would have rung some bells. Um, but or, the, even, or even if it wasn't Kelly, all the details might have rung some bells. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there can't have been that many who'd have had that specific a life story. Um, I'm interested also, in the in the brother in the Scots Guards, though. That's always seemed to me to be the the link quite, through to Mary Kelly, if that were true. Well, the, the but, interesting thing uh, about the other the thing I was, I was very quickly was going to say was that there is some evidence that at least some members of the immediate family before the murder went back to Ireland. 
And I think, you know, we've got to sort of bear that in mind as well, because the, I think an important and, in my opinion, a sort of neglected statement is the, the city missionary. Um, there, was a, there was a reporter going around talking to people, and he met this uh, city missionary who was, who was unnamed, who gave quite a detail, who, who knew Kelly, um, and he said that Kelly had shown him letters from uh, her mother in Limerick. Um, so the mother by that time had, had gone back to Ireland and was still writing to Kelly. He also said that Kelly had been to some of his uh, religious meetings and said that at least one of Kelly's friends had been saved, as he put it, by his missionary movement. So, I th you know, there's some quite interesting little snippets there that I haven't seen anywhere else. Now, where was just, that? Um, Sorry. So, there's quite a few. So it, it's it's in the press reports. I can dig it out and send it to you if you want. I think it was yeah, a letter, it's wasn't it? It's, 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 I think it was a letter to the press. No, it was it was in a it was part of an account. It was a reporter who was going out, going round the streets, talking to people, trying to know Kelly. And the the city missionary was one of them. Paul, you were going to um, say something on that last comment. Oh, uh, just basically. A, 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 Essentially, it said it, which was that the brother who was in the Scots Guards, I've always thought, um, was the was the link through to Mary Kelly because, you know, he he would be presumably be fairly well well uh, documented, and uh, I was also intrigued by the fact that Barnett seemed to know where the Scots Guards were. So unless he actually had a particular interest in the Scots Guards. Uh, or, um, or, or just had a, a broad general interest in troop movements, um, then that, that suggested uh, the, uh, you know, a link with, with reality. This was something that he wasn't making up. The interesting thing about this, this Kelly family in Halkett Street, though, Paul, is, is I've got an entry from the 1891 census where the younger brother of this Mary Kelly is listed in the Glamorgan District Asylum as Dennis Kelly, single age 28, soldier, brackets, lunatic. So, yeah. uh, unfortunately, the Glamorgan District Asylum records no longer exist, but um, it'd be interesting to, to see which regiment this Dennis Kelly belonged to. Yes, I, I, it's kind of... I, I did do some research to try and find out uh, Kellys who were serving with the, with the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards but every time I contacted the Scots Guards, they uh, gave me you know, different Kellys. They, they, more and more Kellys seemed to be turning yeah. up. And I got, uh, got thoroughly confused in the end. That, um, that, that statement, Paul, was uh, one version of it. It was in the evening news on the 12th of November. All right. Good. I shall, um, uh... it's, it's fairly brief. It's quite interesting. It says... Um, there is no doubt, said a city missionary, and again he's not named, that the impression has been very profound among these unhappy women. We have had special meetings for them, and at the very outset of our efforts, we got 34 of them away to homes. We have had a good many others since. I knew the poor girl who has just been killed, and to look at, at all events, she was one of the smartest, nicest-looking women in the neighbourhood. We have had her at some of our meetings, and a companion of hers was one we rescued. I know that she has been in correspondence with her mother. Um, it is not true, as it has been stated, that she is a Welsh woman. She is of Irish parentage, and her mother, I, I believe, lives in Limerick. I used mm. to hear a good deal about the letters from her mother there. You would not have supposed, if you had met her in the street, that she belonged to the miserable class she did. 
as she was always neatly and decently dressed and looked quite nice and respectable. And that's what he had to say about. Yeah, seems to tie in with what other people yeah. said as well. But it's for, for, for what, I'm, what the, I was... the illiteracy idea as well, wouldn't it? It was, um, you know, if, if other accounts were saying that she was a scholar, then this, you know, could potentially lend weight to that. Yes, she was. Uh, yeah. She was not completely illiterate, but um, but you know, if, if she was writing to her mother, um, mm. at, least, at, least, at the very least, been to school. Um, you know, something, something to consider. That's right. And again, the 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 the, the very brief mentions that Barnett makes of. Uh, he mentions two other members of Kelly's family, but again, they're infuriating because they, there's no time frame. Um, he says that um, the brother who was in the army came to visit Kelly, but he doesn't say where or when. Um, and he also says that when, during the period when Kelly was living in the Ratcliffe Highway area, either presumably with Morgan Stone or Bethnal Green Road or um, in Breezes Hill, that Kelly's father came looking for her. Kelly's father actually came to London to look for her. Yes. Uh, uh, and the, but a friend of Kelly's told her and she hid. So she knew her father had come to London and was looking for her, but uh, she kept out of the way and presumably he drew a blank and went away. But again, we're not given any... Well, if that was in the Ratcliffe Highway area, it must have been... You know, sort of mid-period, presumably not too long before she met Barnett. Mm. So that, sh- that shows, you know, the family knew where she was and were making efforts to keep in touch. Um, let's uh, fast forward a little bit um, to the night of her murder. I want to discuss a couple of things. Um, we have, according to Cox and then George Hutchison, her being seen with two different men on the, the night before uh, her death. Marianne Cox saw her at around 11.45 p.m. with the individual who's come to be known as blotchy-faced man, whose uh, description was, as Robert mentioned in the introduction, blotchy-faced man was 36 years old, uh, 5 feet 5 in height, fresh complexion, blotches on his face, small side whiskers, and a thick carroty mustache, dressed in shabby dark clothes, dark overcoat, and black felt hat. And then later on at the inquest, she describes him as uh, short, stout, and shabbily dressed, carrying the pot of ale. Now, at 11.45 p.m., this is a few hours before the time of death, but nevertheless, without George Hutchison's statement about Astrakhan Man, this blotchy-faced man is the last person uh, seen alive with Mary Kelly. And then uh, George Hutchison, as Robert said, gave the detailed description of Astrakhan Man. Um, Neither blotchy-faced man nor Astrakhan Man really resemble any of the other witness descriptions of men seen with Jack the Ripper's victims prior to their death, which has led some to believe that Mary Kelly was not a victim of the same murderer. And then with George Hutchison's account, of course, being um, so detailed, people brought into question the validity of his witness account. What does anyone make of this, uh, of, the, of these two witnesses, one spying her with a man at 1145, and then George Hutchison seeing Astrakhan Man later? Just a word, uh, if I may, about the... Um the blotchy, the, the blotchy description. Sure. 
One often uh, assume that he, you know, he was physically very dissimilar to other witness descriptions, but if you cast your mind back to uh, the Ada Wilson um, attack, which uh, is um, quite often considered a sort of early, you know, an early trial run or some, something of that nature, and the two descriptions, there's quite a lot of congruity there. I mean, uh, Marianne Cox uh, described the headgear as a billy cock, whereas um, uh, Ada Wilson mentioned a wide awake. And I learned recently that the two headgear, it, it's, they're interchangeable. They refer to the same, uh, a hat, sort of like a derby, where the, sort of, um, the side bits would go up, and it's uh, a, a sort of bowler and a derby. And uh, both, both the same height, um, I think the same weight as well. And what's uh, most interesting of all is that uh, Ada Wilson specified a sort of um, bad skin or, sort of a, or a sort of sunburnt complexion. So that, that suggests an, an interesting possible congruity with the, uh, with the, blotchy, with the blotchy suspect, um, especially if they're the sort of same age, height, and everything else. Um, so that's something to think about. And also, um, considering that Ada, Wil Ada Wilson mentioned a wide awake, uh, uh, so too did Sarah Lewis of, of the man sort of loitering at 2.30 opposite Miller's court um, obviously introdu introducing the possibility that, uh, that, that, that you know all descriptions are describing the same man which of course you know differs wildly from the, from the Astrakhan description which is uh, its virtual antithesis if you like I don't know what any, anyone else's thoughts are on that well from the murders uh, you know through from uh, let's say Chapman uh through to Eddowes, simply because there are no witnesses for the Nichols one, uh, we get actually a, a wide v a variety of descriptions of people, last people seen uh, with the victim before they died. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, you can say that uh, these two men don't match the other men, but the other men don't match each other as well. Uh, you know, whether it be Joseph Lavender's man, who's five foot seven, fair complexion, you know, brown mustache, salt and pepper jacket. And then you take somebody like Elizabeth Long, uh, who spotted a man t supposedly talking to Annie Chapman, who was dark complexion. He was 40 years old. Um, you know, he was only a little bit taller than Annie Chapman. So she has him as quite short. So, you know, it's it's difficult to, to make anything out of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's all about sort of finding as much kind of superficial congruity as, as, uh, as, as, po as possible. And obviously in certain cases, um, you know, for example, Astrakhan Man and the, uh, and the Blotchy character, obviously they, they're, they're describing different people. Um, and, and with some other psychologists, Elizabeth Long's I mean, by her own admission, she didn't see the uh, man's face. So I think that would reduce the worth of any, uh, of, of, uh, you know, her, of her evidential value. Um, you know, without having seen the suspect's face, it's like saying, well, you know, he was wearing a long overcoat, but I could tell he had pink underwear. It's, it's you know, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, I, I think, because it's a rear view in that case, it's, uh, I, th I think the worth is slightly decreased, which, you know, if, if, if the killer was, you know, let's, let's assume, you know, you know, Gentile and sort of, you know, n you know not foreign, um, then... Elizabeth Long's uh, description couldn't have come at a more sort of opportune time, in a way. Um, well, yeah. and and also you even have uh, certain similarities as you're talking about uh, talking about shallow similarities that we look for in in, in the murder of Stride. Uh, P.C. William Smith uh, saw a man uh, with Stride who was carrying a parcel, and George Hutchinson said that the man that he saw 
with Mary Jane Kelly was also carrying a parcel. Yes, precisely. And you sort of, uh, well, in, 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 with, with, in, in Hutchinson's case, um, you can't help but wonder if you sort of borrowing liberally from other accounts, because, I mean, not only does his description incorporate that, that the kind of the kind of parcel, the kind of tightly grasped package, um, but also things like a you know a red a red uh, handkerchief or neckerchief, um, you know, walking very softly. That was you know uh, similar to Mary Cox's uh, description, uh, and as well as kind of you know uh, incorporating other bits and pieces from other witness accounts, it also tends to pander to a few early myths that I think were, were, were circulating from the early murders. For example, you know since uh, leather apron onwards. I mean, the popular perception was that, you know, the, the murderer may have been a Jew, uh, and possibly, you know, a doctor, and so well dressed by virtue of his medical calling. And so, Hutchinson's description sort of incorporated all that. And I, I'd rather get the impression that he was laying it all, laying it all, all on, a, on a trowel slightly. That, that's, How do that's, you that, all? Go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say, how do you all figure uh, the Hutchinson story in relation to <coughs> the, the state that Mary Kelly was in? She was apparently uh, quite drunk. She um, had got... <coughs> sorry, she was drunk enough to, to be in that irritating state where she apparently sang the same song over and over and over again. Uh, and yet... Well, done it many a time. Uh, and... Uh, you put me off now. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Paul. That's all right. And um, yet, no, I uh, see what you're saying. Relatively it's short, to short time later, she, she's out talking to. She's a little bit spreeish. I mean, at one point she's she's really badly drunk, and the next minute she's. It's not really happened to me very much. I, I... no, it, it it doesn't it doesn't quite compute, does it? What I think significant is that if you take Hutchinson's statement completely out of question, and you're just left with the inquest sort of evidence, um, then what you've got is uh, Mary Kelly really battening down the hatches um, at sort of 1am, uh, and, and it's, all, it's all sort of lights out, she stops singing, and uh, there's no compelling evidence to, to, to suggest that she was um, either you know, able or, or willing to go out again. But it's only when yeah. Hutchinson comes along and says, well, you know, yes, uh, she was on the street subsequently. Uh, and and in a sort of slightly miraculously uh, sobered up sobered up state. Um. Well, it, it depends rather Ben on whether you know one man's spreeish is, is another woman's completely blotto. Um, so you know these are subjective sort of judgments. Um, so you know Hutchinson's comment to that effect uh, either signifies that um, he wasn't quite sure because he wasn't there and he was making it all up anyway, or, or B, that he did see Kelly, but he didn't think that she was particularly um, drunk anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah, quite, quite, quite possibly, yes. Um, I think it's um, what, what, what sort of clings it for me um, in terms of the extent of her likely inebriation was um, I think Mrs. Cox said that she was incapable, Mary Kelly was incapable of bidding her a simple good night. And yeah. that would suggest to me, you know, a fairly hefty extent of the uh, Sloshedness, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I need to drink a bit more and do and conduct a bit of field research to. Uh, <laughs> put my, oh, what put a good idea! I've never yeah. thought of doing. Yeah. Crack open one now. Can I just add one thing with regards to Hutchinson, which has always sort of intrigued me? Is uh, I've, I've 
again, to nail my colours to the mast, I really don't know what to make of the Hutchinson account. You know, one time I read it and I come to one conclusion, then you, you go back to it. And But what, in, what intrigues me about it is the sort of alleged um, and also the what people assume would be the nature of Hutchinson's relationship with Kelly. If he were telling the truth that he knew her and she addressed him by name, she called him Hutchinson, and he said that actually he'd known her about twice as long as Barnett had known her. I mean, he said he'd known her for three years, um, and Barnett had only known her 18 months. So, you know, if anybody knew her to, you know, to recognise. But I, I, I always wondered whether the implication is that Hutchinson was either a, a casual client of hers or whether he was hoping for a trick that night or... Also, I think you have to remember the fact that he was effectively homeless for the night because he'd been shut out because he got back too late. And on his own admission, he walked uh, the streets of Whitechapel all the rest of the night until the Victoria home opened again. So whether he was just trying to get a roof over his head or whether he was trying to get Kelly to turn a trick for him or, or whatever, but, I mean, he'd already told her that he had no money. So I always wonder if there was any truth in the Barnard account, firstly, what, what the nature of his relationship with Kelly was and also... Why, why he was so obsessed with her and this man. It's, it's interesting. Also, um, I think uh, the, th the three-year fact that the Hutchinson mentions also ties in, I think, with, uh, with Joseph Fleming. Also, I think he uh, met her, I think, in Pennington Street around the same time. So it would have mean that, you know, both of them would have known uh, Kelly for, for longer than... Yeah, than yeah. The, the other interesting thing in that context <coughs> is, of course, that Hutchinson also says in his statement... Uh, that, or rather in his press statement, that he used to give sh uh, Kelly a few shillings on occasion. Yes, that's right. A heck of a lot of money for a yeah. casual acquaintance or, or even for you know, a, a client-prostitute uh, relationship. Yeah. Uh, a few shillings was, was more like alimony in those days. Yeah. That's, that's, what it, that's, what, that's what I mean. That's what intrigues me as to the sort of nature of their... Of course, the other thing, which is even more surprising because he's such a... a Unfrequently mentioned, infrequently mentioned um, uh, witness was the the one who actually claimed to have known Kelly the longest. I mean, there was there was one man who claimed to have known Kelly longer than Hutchinson. Was it Maurice Lewis? Was, was yeah, he claimed that he'd known Kelly since she came to London, which was uh, 1884. So he claimed that he knew, he'd known her about four years. But but he also but, said she was she was about four foot three, fat with black hair, didn't he? So. <laughs> <laughs> What's that effect? <laughs> Frustrating that uh, that Barnett sort of didn't offer any corroboration along those lines. Sort of, oh Hutchinson, oh yes, yes, you mentioned him, seen it, you know, seen him a few times, and Morris Lewis. I mean, you know, I mean, there's there's no evidence that uh, Barnett, for example, knew who Hutchinson was or um, anything along along those lines. Certainly not Morris Lewis. I mean, yes. The whole thing about Barnett's testimony is odd because I mean the other. I mean, him and uh, Maria Harvey and Barnett described the same event, which was the, the meeting on the Thursday night. Barnett turned up and Maria Harvey was there with Kelly and then Maria Harvey stayed for a little while and then swanned off and then Barnett left shortly after. Well, when, when Maria Harvey um, describes the event, she says, oh, I was there when Bar you know, Joe Barnett turned up and then I left and he was still there. But when Joe Barnett describes it, which is what is obvious... Uh, Patently the same event. He just says, "Oh, Kelly was there with a female." Well, I'm not and sure it was the same event personally, because he said he was with uh, uh, there with a young female who lived in the same court. 
Well, Maria Harvey didn't. She lived. Uh, she either didn't live anywhere, or she was living uh, in Kelly's room, and then she got a room of her own down in. I think it was Paternoster Court or something, which is just down the road. New, new, so when Cal- new Court wasn't Court. Uh, new Court. That's right. So when that's when right, yeah. uh, Barnett says uh, that uh, Kelly was there with a young woman who lived in the same court, then it doesn't appear that he was referring to uh, and Maria that's- Harvey. Yeah, that's where Lucy Albrook's name comes into it. Yeah. That's right. So I was going by the timing because I, I thought that both events were described as being on the, the Thursday evening at about half past seven. Well, they were, but I think there's some, some uh, discrepancies creep into Maria Harvey's yeah. uh, testimony because in some instances yeah. she's, uh, she or at least the journalist who's reporting the interview with her is, uh, says that, uh, that Kelly visited her. Um, in, right. in her room and things, and, and that she was seen to, to last seen to walk off in the direction of, uh, of somewhere or another. But um, yeah. you know, but Maria Harvey seems to be a, initially seems to be a very unreliable witness mm. in, in and seems to be a bit confused. Yeah. Unfortunately, of course, Lizzie Albrook doesn't turn up in the uh, at the inquest. But then the inquest suggesting, are... suggesting perhaps that the police had already sussed her out by then. Possibly. I mean. That's, I mean, other witnesses um, appeared very early on after the murder. For example, Mrs. Kennedy appeared, um, yeah. I think, in the morning advertiser on the 10th of November and then subsequently on the, on the 12th. But she uh, did, was not... That was such uh, a short uh, inquest, wasn't it? So. Yeah, that's, that's true as well. Um, but uh, I think what a, a, a star reporter mentioned that uh, certain accounts were being sort of parroted off, um, sort, of, sort of almost like sort of Chinese whispers. And uh, yeah. I think a few a few women in the court were doing precisely that, and the police perhaps got wind of got wind of them, and so which is why they weren't called to the inquest. I, I think, think this is uh, a but I'm not sure about. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Paul. Um, I was just going to say that uh, the other thing with uh, with uh, Lizzie Albrook, of course, was the fact that the uh, people had seen Kelly afterwards, so it wasn't really necessary to have her there to testify to anything and but maria harvey uh was important uh, as a witness because it was um probably her belongings which had been burned in the grate and it was the, the jacket and all of this sort of stuff um yeah and she never did and she never did get her clothing back uh that she left at at mary's well would, yeah. would, would you i mean the <laughs> here's a box of ash mrs harvey <laughs> but the, but uh, one thing I was going to chip in with, with there was, you know, a number of these, I mean, even, you know, God help us, Mary Kelly herself, um, a number of people lived by aliases and, and, and various sort of common law names that they'd attracted and dropped, like, um, you know, uh, Conway, Kelly, um, uh, Barnett, Kidney, whatever. Uh, you know, the, the people went by different names uh, depending on who was asking them who they were. Um, so a number of these people that pop up, uh, I mean, Ben mentioned Mrs. Kennedy there. Uh, I'm pretty certain that she is um, Sarah Lewis, uh, right, possibly yeah. by a different name. Uh, there was another another woman called Sarah Roney, uh, R-O-N-E-Y, right. who came up with a very similar story about uh, being out with a couple of friends and accosted by a strange-looking man. Um, mm. 
another which, bag uh, story. Yeah, and it's, it's it, and her name was Sarah Roney, and I, I can't help thinking that, that that Roney, Kennedy, and Lewis might well be, if not a Chinese whisper sort of uh, manifestation, then possibly the same person who'd, who'd gone by a number of different names over the years. That's that's a, that's a possibility as well. I mean, always yeah. when I when I look at sort of black bags, I sort of uh, like, you know I get a bit sort of. Uh, it's like Leon Goldstein gets about a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, what I, yeah. what I find interesting is that, you know, not only Mary Kelly's history is uh, problematic, but, but even uh, after her death, we get all of these conflicts uh, with uh, the people coming forward. It's, it's not so clear-cut. Um, even after she's dead, all of these different accounts and people that come forward that, you know, at times uh, conflict with one another, but... Not least the doctors. Um, yeah, we, you get differences of opinion there, um, especially in the Kelly case. But, well, I think it's, know, quite, it's, quite, it's, it's quite possible that, I mean, if, if Kelly had given that very detailed account of her life to Barnett, I mean, there's no guarantee that she said, she said the same thing to other people. I mean, there could have been various versions. I mean, this is pure speculation. But, I mean, we have, you know, we, we know that uh, with at least one other victim that they were definitely spinning a yarn with, with the, the Princess Alice business with Stride. So, I mean, it's, I don't think it's inconceivable that women in that position, especially in any dealings with the law or figures in authority, would have, would have spun yarns or to, elicit, yeah. or to elicit sympathy. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, this is sort of a bit unrelated, but uh, uh, Chris uh, or, or anybody else, uh, the Mary Jane Kelly on September 19th, who was fined uh, two shillings and sixpence at the Thames Magistrate Court for being drunk and disorderly. Uh, some people wonder if it's the Mary Jane Kelly of Miller's Court. It's possible. I think it's. I know it's not what ripperologists like to hear, but it's a word I use on the quite deliberately on the threads now. And then there are some things which I think are just unknowable. You know, everybody's got this sneaking feeling that if you dig around enough you're going to find it but there are some things which we'd love to know but either the evidence has gone or was never there in the first place and I think it's possible I think that's all you can say um, What do we all make of the uh, sightings of uh, Mary Kelly uh, the morning of her murder, uh, Maxwell in particular Anyone? Yeah, nobody's brave enough to jump in on this one are they? Um I don't know. It's interesting. It it always gets me. You've really with with Mrs. Maxwell. You've got one one of two choices. Either she wanted her five minutes of fame, uh, or uh, she she genuinely, fully, one hundred percent believed that she did see Kelly uh, when she says she did. Mm. Now, if you're questioned that much. And, and you, you surely, if you're a normal, rational, sensible human being, you will question your beliefs. No matter how firmly you believe it, you will question it, especially if somebody, the doctors and the medical evidence and so forth, is that the person that you think you saw was dead. Mm. You, it, it's a serious, serious thing to, to, to cause you to stop and think. So she, she was either... So, so, so needing needing help, really, medical or psychiatric assistance for for believing this, uh, or she did. So, or, or, of course, the third possibility is that the person that she saw wasn't Mary Kelly; it was somebody who she thought 
I'm mis- mis- confused with mm. uh, with Mary Kelly. But, but you know, uh, she she does only admit to knowing her for a very short time, and only ever having spoken to her, I think, on two occasions, which makes the familiarity true. of the exchange. You know, but, but, incident, but if the, this, but if the, if the reported speech is correct, then she addressed Kelly by name, and Kelly addressed her not only by name but by a familiar. She called her Carrie. Carrie, yeah, and then she uses a bit of Wenglish. Actually, I do feel so bad, which yeah. is. Uh, which, which, if anything, is characteristic of, of, of South Wales Valley speak. as the I do bit. Uh, yes. Paul will remember that from his youth. Uh, I mean, yes, the, indeed. It, it doesn't actually sound odd to me at all. I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't no. even have thought to, to comment on it. It sounds such a normal, yeah. normal phrase. I mean, the way that I saw it summarised was that, that Maxwell was either lying, drunk or mistaken. Uh, and I can't see convincing... Evidence. I mean, she was going about her normal business. She went off to Bishopsgate to get some milk for her husband, and she was, she was toddling about on errands. I can't see any evidence that she was roaring drunk. Um, no, I can't she, see. Any, I can't see any motive. The, Sorry, Chris. I, I was going to say her, her husband was the the, the deputy of the. Yeah, he was the deputy officer, of, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think his uh, Richard. I think his name was. Um, so fairly respectable. I mean, by. Yeah. Stamp, yes. yeah, and she was, she was toddling about and she went off to Bishopsgate to get some milk for his breakfast and then came back and saw Kelly about half an hour later, again, standing on the corner talking to this man. Um, if you think she was lying, again, as Paul said, um, you know, she did so under oath at an inquest and was warned by the coroner, you know, who said to her in effect, look, everybody else's evidence is contrary to yours. Are you sure of what you're saying? But she stuck to her guns. Um, and the other, what I think is probably the normal interpretation, is that she was mistaken. In other words, she had the wrong day. She, maybe she saw Kelly on the Thursday morning. But I find that hard to equate when the police statement, not, not, the, not the inquest, but the police statement, is dated the day of the murder. I mean, she, you know, she was questioned and made that statement on the very day that Kelly was murdered. And, I, you know, if somebody said to me, you know, it's now, what, 20, 20 past eight in the evening, if somebody said something to me, about an event happening this morning. I like to think that, you know, I wouldn't be so befuddled or mistaken that I think it, it happened yesterday or something that happened yesterday happened today. That's a very good point. And, and I think there is a press report somewhere, is there not, of, uh, of um, a journalist going to the milk shop and confirming the story. Yes, uh, there's, yes. So there's, there's not only has she got the, the day right, but... But her actions, what she was doing, where yes. she was going, what Again, she did. Yes, yes. Again, she was just if going about of, her normal business. Yeah, if all of that is accurately reported. Yeah. But, but yeah. But then again, she did say that, that, that you know, Kelly had pointed to uh, uh, some vomit in, in, in the roadway uh, yeah. that morning. I mean, given that it was only a few hours, uh, you know, later, um, surely the vomit would still have been there, at least in some shape or another. Um, mm. It not been a particularly, you know, well-sanitised neighbourhood and all that. And I, I dare say that the, the street sweepers hadn't been around, and especially if there was a police cordon around the area, that would have been yeah. valuable evidence. But, you know, the vomit yeah. didn't turn up. No. Well, would but they? The other, the other I, th- I mean, to be honest, the amount that people drank, I would have thought, I'm surprised that the, the streets weren't swimming in the stuff. Yeah, uh, but but also you've seen that picture of uh, of, of how busy uh, the area could be, 
and you'd have you'd have had horses and carts and goodness knows what else and horse droppings and horse pee and and if it was a uh, not not wanting to really get into this, I hope people aren't having their tea when we discuss this. But <laughs> I was don't about want to get in. <laughs> don't want to get into too much uh, depth about the, the the solidity of the the vomit, but it could just if it was just liquid. Yeah. Um, because she still had remains of food in her stomach, so uh, she presumably didn't hadn't regurgitated uh, the, the, the everything that was in her stomach. And I'm not that familiar, oddly enough, with uh, with vomiting to be able to say whether you can vomit partially or or have to vomit completely. <laughs> Don't vacate the stomach in in. Uh, I don't really want to pursue that line of thought. More you know what I, mean. <laughs> I think. I think another interesting thing about the Maxwell um, business, because she made a statement on on the day of the murder, um, is how her evidence came to the attention of the police. Whether they they sort of did a dragnet up and down because um, she presumably was still with her husband, who was on duty at the lodging house opposite. Whether the police did a you know, a, almost a house-to-house, or whether she would have looked out and seen the disturbance and gone over to find out and then thought, oh, God, you know, I only saw her this morning and then would have spoken to one of the police. So I don't know whether the police would have found her and got the statement or whether she actually came forward and went to went to the police. Obviously, that's in unstitched. Previous, in, in previous events that, or murders, they, they did do localised house-to-house searches. Yes, yeah. So it's quite and likely the that they would might have been... primary target, yeah, so gonna... because that's where... Oh, yeah. Just... Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I was just going to say that, you know, against uh, Maxwell's timing, what does she say? She sees Kelly first, is, is it half past eight, and then she sees her again at nine or, or, or whatever when she returned from her yeah. rent. Is, is, given that Kelly's body was found fairly cold at sort of, you know, quarter to eleven... That, that that gives her what less than an hour and a half uh, to go out mm. and meet Jack the Ripper or at least her murderer and be escorted back to her room and and, and pulled to pieces uh, before Thomas Bowyer turns up looking for the rent. I mean the timeline is is pretty tight. It's certainly doable within that time frame, but it it's just a little bit tight uh, to my mind. The other the other interesting thing well, is that the um, there are, there are two different versions of her description of the man that she saw Kelly with at nine o'clock because, as, as Rob said, uh, one description, she said that he was wearing a plaid coat. But in, uh, in another version, she said he was dressed as a market porter. Uh, another thing that bothers me about the Carolyn uh, Maxwell coming forward is, uh, is uh, something that Bond says, like uh, he found uh, her dinner partially digested, that of fish and potatoes. <laughs> Um, now she's throwing up in the street at between eight and eight thirty in the morning. And when, when does she when does she buy this fish and potatoes to eat it? Um, well, that's because that's was, a fact. That's what I was so, just saying. Yeah, I was just wondering whether when you you know if 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 she's had a she just said that she'd been she told Mrs. Maxwell that she had just been to the Britannia, had a hair of the dog, come back and had brought it up in the street. Mm. Which I think is the sequence that, that she says. And I, I, if she had vomited up the, the the half pint or whatever it was that she just had at the Britannia, 
would that have necessarily caused her to, 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 to vomit up the rest of the contents in her stomach? That was the point I was having difficulty um, making earlier on. No, I don't. So, not, not necessarily, I don't think so. Because it, well, in that, that case, that, that, the, the, the fish and potatoes stay in the stomach and she just brings back up that liquid. Yeah. And my question is, if she's, feeling, if she's feeling unwell, she wouldn't be eating fish and potatoes in the morning, right? Well, she doesn't have to. It depends to, when uh, she, she ate. She no. Presumably. Yeah. She had, you know. At the fish and potatoes at night time before going to sleep, wakes up, goes to the pub, has a drink, brings the drink back up, and the food still is fine, found in the stomach. That's the, the sequence. Well, the, it, 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 the interesting it, thing about that, Paul, is, 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 that, is that fish protein, uh, I did some digging a while back, and uh, the fish protein actually uh, gets totally digested in a very short space of time. Uh, I think it's about two hours. Um, so for the doctors to have reported seeing partly digested fish in the remains of her stomach mm. suggests that the meal was, was actually taken between an hour and an hour and a half before she died. Uh, that, that would be my interpretation of it, uh, which is intriguing given that, given that you know, Hutchinson sees her out at 2 o'clock. Uh, and from an earlier case, from, from the Tabram case, we've got uh, Elizabeth Mahoney, uh, going to buy her old man some fish and chips at a Chandler's shop in Thrall Street at two o'clock in the morning. Um, mm. So we know that just from actually where, where, where Hutchinson allegedly first sees Kelly, we know that, that at least when Tabram was killed, there was a Chandler's shop there that sold fish and chips at that time of the morning. Um, and I, I can't help you know, but think that there may be some, uh, something of interest there. I would imagine uh, McCarthy, wouldn't he? Even I was going to say, even closer to home, we know that McCarthy sold takeaway food late. Yes, I, because that's, um, that's what we all said. So. At the time of the Castle Alley murder, the first um, when the copper found Alice McKenzie, the first person he happened upon was the um, Isaacs, I think his name was, and he was walking along with a plate in his hand. And the copper said, "Where are you going?" And he said, "I'm going to get my supper at the Chandler's in Dorset Street." That's right. So he was going to presumably. He was going to presumably McCarthy's, and that was after midnight. So presumably yeah, and, McCarthy and did. That sort of getting checked into, you know, the police going round. I mean, asking at the sort of Chandler shop, you know, did did the deceased pop in here at uh, at, at some point between, you know, whatever, you know, twelve o'clock and two o'clock. Um, I think possibly. Well, I think possibly there were quite the, a lot of those places around. Oh yeah, oh possibly. And I, I, also, going back to the um, uh, the speed of digestion, am I right in saying that both uh, booze and sleep slow down the dig- digestive process? I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure that's the case, but I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm no uh, no physiological expert. But I'm 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 pretty sure that would uh, you know have a uh, sort of slow, slowing down effect. Sleep definitely does. I don't know about alcohol, but sleep, yeah, definitely does. Because I think I think it came up in the um, the trial of uh, William Henry Berry. Actually, I think I think I think um, uh, uh, Ellen had, uh, had had consumed alcohol. I, th- I think that um, uh, that that played a part there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the details, but um, something to mm. something to check into. Ha- ha- just a quick note. Having said that about McCarthy's, I think it's unlikely that Kelly bought her last meal there because presumably, if she owed him twenty nine shillings, she'd have just kept a low profile. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and while you're here, Mary Kelly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
was it 29 though? Because I've, I've, I've read, I mean, that's the sort of, if, if you like, the, the canonical version, yeah. to use a much, much maligned word. But I've seen other newspaper reports where as much as 35, I think those were the times, 35 shillings. I've and there were others then that said. To, yeah. So the, tw- the, tw- the 29 comes from McCarthy himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other versions of what she owes comes from newspaper accounts, but uh, the 29 right. comes from McCarthy's police statement and inquest testimony. I've seen 30. Perhaps it was index linked or something. You know? The stock market took a dip. So. I, don't know if he was getting, I don't know if he was getting in an early claim, you know, whether he thought, you know, if I say how much this woman owes me, you know, is there somewhere I can get it back? I don't know if that was his thinking, but uh, also, of course, you know, it's, uh, it's an odd amount. You know, it's not an exact uh, week's rentage. If it was four and sixpence a week, I mean, that doesn't divide it equally into 29. No. No, which makes me think that she was probably her and uh, her and Joe were making partial payments here and there. You know, giving a giving a shilling here and there. Yeah, or possibly in in better days when they were still comparatively solvent. I mean, I would imagine um, because of the because of the rents he ran, I would imagine that at least uh, just for convenience. Um, at least you know some of his tenants did actually shop at McCarthy's shop, and maybe he kept a tab for them. Right, and and also there are no other reports that McCarthy goes after Barnett for the money. Am I correct there? He he never asks as as Barnett for the twenty nine shillings. Yeah, not. And, and and Kelly wasn't the only one who was in you know uh, in arrears at the time. I believe it was Elizabeth Prater, or it may have been uh, Cox or one of the others. Uh, it, it also also says that they they owed um, you know the landlord money. So, you know, Kelly wasn't alone in, in, in Miller's Court in, in, in owing McCarthy some dosh. Yeah, it's quite a sizable amount to let her run up, though. That is, yes. It, it's, it also almost suggests that he wasn't that bothered. I mean, if he was allowing it to get that high, uh, you know, how, how high does he have to, have to allow it to go before he says, right, uh, can I claim now, please? Um, well, the interesting thing is, of course, Barnett was, was, was starting to open up um, his... Uh, his, his slum rental business at this uh, at this point. Um, he also had, had properties in um, Great Pearl Street where Sarah Lewis lived. Uh, the witness who came to stay with the Keelers or the Kelseys or the Kellehers. Uh, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> versions vary. Oh, that lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, that lot opposite. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of a. You know, an interesting possibility that that uh, Sarah Lewis might actually have been one of McCarthy's tenants as well, albeit in a different uh, part of town, uh, a, few, a few hundred yards north of uh, of Dorset Street. Can can somebody refresh my memory? I know this is a, a little bit off uh, topic, but what was the apart from Kelly's room at the back? What was the rest of the ground floor of Twenty Six Dorset Street used for? This was this was the alleged. Well, shed. I'll probably get in trouble. Um, but yeah, this this was um, used by Barn uh, by Barn, uh, by McCarthy rather to store his uh, his tools in, wasn't it? And his wheelbarrows or or whatever. All oh, right. So just like a sto- storage area. Yeah, just a storage area. Yeah. That, that was the whole of the front of uh, the of twenty six, I believe, had been um, co opted for that purpose by uh, by McCarthy. Yeah. So the other tenants, the tenants on the upper floors, like Elizabeth Prater, would have gained access to their rooms because there was a, there was an earlier door down the passageway. There were two doors, weren't they? As you went down 
the archway to into Miller's Court, there was a door on the right that led into a staircase, if I remember rightly. That's okay, correct. The, the, door, the door just before Kelly's, that's right, yes. That would have that's been, right. Yeah, the other doors. Yeah, that would have been the other Kelly's doorstep. Sorry, kind of a joke there oh. with the Brits. <laughs> Very poor one. <clears throat> now, um, oh, glad I live in Kent. <laughs> I do want to touch on one more thing before we wrap this up. And and as you guys know, that we there's a lot more that we haven't talked about. Like, and we can talk about some stuff next week, like uh, the the latch on the door and the broken window and all that. And uh, um, but I did want to ask Robert since um since uh, he was a uh, guest way back on uh, episode two discussing the photographs that were taken of Mary Kelly. I was hoping Robert would be able to um, discuss a little bit about the history of the taking of the uh, Mary Kelly photographs, which is what um, newcomers to the case, one of the first things they'll see um, when, they, when they start to investigate the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, so, Robert, if you, if you could um, indulge us by telling us a little bit more about the uh, the crime scene pho- photographs that were taken in Miller's Court. Well, I'll try to be brief. Um, uh, in 1888, the Metropolitan Police did not have a proper photographic department, and they employed uh, independent photographers to take photographs. Uh, Joseph Martin was one of those photographers, and I'm pretty sure he was the one called uh, to Miller's Court that day. I won't go into all the details. I mean, you can listen to the show that I was on if you want to know about that. By all accounts, by, like, by some paper, paper, newspaper accounts, it took a while to find him, to locate him. Uh, he lived in the Ratcliffe Highway area, so uh, it's, it's quite plausible that it, it did take a while to get him. But since the door wasn't forced until 1.30, uh, they had plenty of time to find him. Um, he probably brought along an assistant because he would have had a lot of equipment. Uh, cameras were bulky at the time. If he used something like glass plates, that would have increased uh, his load. And it's the first known example we have in British history of crime scene photography. Uh, up until then, there was just mortuary photography that was used mostly for identification purposes and not evidentiary value. But it's clear that Miller's Court, these pictures were taken for evidentiary value and uh, preserved as a crime scene. Uh, we have the outdoor picture, the one that's taken uh, outside uh, 13 Miller's Court of the room. We don't know exactly what time of day that was taken, uh, but it was found along with the pictures of uh, Mary Kelly uh, by Don Rumbelow, so it's, it's probable that it was taken uh, that day, uh, November 9th. There's been some conjecture whether he stood inside or outside the room when he took the famous photograph of Kelly on the bed, whether he took it through the window, whether the window was taken out, or whether he stood inside of the room. Um, the room was small, but uh, uh, given uh, the focal length and the angles of the lens, he could have been easily standing inside and got the width of the bed in the photograph uh, that we have. Uh, many photographs uh, would have been taken that day, and unfortunately we only have two. Uh, one photograph that absolutely for 100% positive would have been taken was from the foot of the bed, because this would have yielded the most information because we would have saw all of Kelly's body. Uh, and for some reason, that either didn't turn out or it no longer exists. But that's about it. One, I do have one last, last question for you, Robert. Uh, what, what time did you say that you, you think um, the photographer arrived on the scene? Um, personally, I believe it was a bit later in the day. Uh, newspaper reports seem to indicate that. Um, uh, given that uh, he, his studio was on Cannon Street Road, which is in St. George's in the east, uh, it's, it's 
might have taken a fair while to hunt him down. And also, uh, the picture, if you notice, of the outside, the uh, 13 Miller's Court, the outside, um, it had been raining the previous night. But if you look at that photograph, the court looks dry, which also suggests to me that the pho- that photograph was taken later in the day. So possibly the other photographs were taken later in the day. Can I ask Rob uh, one question? Um, and can I also say that I uh, can't praise your book highly enough. It's absolutely incredible. Well, thank um, you. The, how would these... As these photographs were taken by a, a private individual, you know, he wasn't employed by the police full-time as, a, as we would understand a police photographer now, how would the sort of security of these print... I mean, would he take them back to his premises and develop them and then deliver them to the police? Or what I'm getting at is how, how did these other prints, like the like Sanya one and that, how did they get out? How, how would they have been supplied? Was there an official channel or would the photographer have kept sort of a pirate copy or... How would it have been handled security-wise? Um, they didn't get a proper photographic department until 1901. So before then, uh, I think they needed discreet individuals. And uh, Martin worked uh, for the Metropolitan Police uh, you know, until the early 1930s, up until the time of his death, which tells me that he was a discreet individual, that he didn't leak photographs, yeah. that he didn't leak any yeah. of this. But yes, he did, he did take them back to his studio at 11 Cannon Street Road. He did develop them. And... Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure the police would ask him for like a certain amount of copies. Um, in the early cases, it was mostly for identification, as I said, for identification purposes. So in, in the case of, let's say, uh, uh, Marianne Nichols, uh, he would have made several copies. Yes, they would have went into the official files, but then they would have been given to the constables on the ground so they could take it around to the workhouses and the DOS houses and uh, try to make a quick identification. Because I'm sure you'll remember that uh, many of the early victims were misidentified early or they were identified as different people early. And this is what the photograph helped do. But um, as for security-wise, it seemed that uh, Martin especially was a very discreet uh, individual. Um, Now, having said that, like all of uh, the prints were supposedly uh, belonged to the police. So everything that he made, even though that he did it at his studio, it belonged to the Metropolitan Police. Robert, would you would you hazard even a guess as to how many? I know it's purely guesswork, but I mean, how many photos in total do you think it's likely that Martin might have taken at Miller's Court that day? Um, okay, uh, likely I would have say at least two outdoor photos, uh, one mm-hmm. of the room and and probably one of the court, you know, taken from somewhere around the archway. Uh, inside, as I said, from the foot of the bed, that would have probably even been the first photograph taken. Or maybe yeah. the second, um, after the full-length one we have from the side. Uh, yeah. That one, f- that one uh, from the foot of the bed would have been taken because, as I said, that would yield the most information. We've got yeah. that odd second angle shot, as we know, taken from behind the bed, shooting across her body to the table. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the table itself, with the contents on it, would have been photographed. And uh, it's possible uh, that maybe the fireplace or... You know, other angles of the room might have been taken. Uh, uh, to hazard a guess, I wouldn't expect too many more photographs to be taken. Let's say two outdoor photographs, maybe half a dozen indoor photographs, and there certainly though would have been mortuary photographs um, yeah. taken either either before or after the autopsy, and both. So there's yeah. there's there's possibly a photograph taken after they reconstructed Mary Kelly, and she has somewhat yeah. of a face. You know, after yeah. she was stitched up. Mm. And then unfortunately, it doesn't survive, but maybe it still exists somewhere. I'm, I'm still looking. Oh. And I know other people are as well. <laughs> well, 
like I said, we're going to be reconvening here next weekend for a whole other episode on Mary Kelly. But does anyone have any final comments they would like to make today? Just let me make an observation, John, that for some sure. we know so, so little about. Um, there's so much to talk about, isn't there? I know. It, it's... It's one of the ironies of this case, and uh, and it's and also I think it's something that Robert's going to want to touch on next week. Isn't Mary Kelly the most famous um, murder victim? There's so much to talk about her, but yet so little is known. And her legacy, she has this kind of larger than life, you know, legacy in in the case. So it is very interesting. I, th- I think it's salutary to sort of bear in mind. You know, we think of it. Okay, it's the 120th anniversary. Um, and it seems like ancient history in some ways. But, you know, I mean, the way I think of it, I mean, my grand died in uh, 1980, uh, OK, at a good age. And obviously I knew her well and grew up with her. And, you know, Kelly only died, what, five years before she was born. And so it, it, it's, it's even more frustrating in a way that somebody who's so comparatively recent has just sort of like disappeared without trace in the records if she was ever there. You know, if you were searching for somebody in the Middle Ages, you could understand because the records are so fragmentary. But it's it's just doubly frustrating when it's somebody comparatively so recent. You know, only two, three hey, generations. Know, and if people are using aliases, and as you say, you know, I mean, the yeah. chances of uh, you know locating them are effectively zero. Uh, that's that's the kind of frustration. I, I think so. I think so. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I think that's the bottom line. I think so. Alas. Oh, let's live in hope. <laughs> okay. And can I just say, as it is the anniversary, Mary Kelly, R.I.P. Indeed. Uh, yes, second that. Yep. Yes. And that was Rippercast, episode 32, The Life and Death of Mary Jane Kelly, part one. That was the first part of a two-part series on the life and death of Mary Jane Kelly that we're recording the month of November. Part two will be recorded next Sunday, so look for that in your podcast stream. I want to thank everybody that was on the show today. That was Robert McLaughlin, Paul Begg, Gareth Williams, Ben Holm, and Chris Scott. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at our website, www.rippernet.com, or in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section, keyword Jack the Ripper or Rippercast. If you have any questions or comments for myself, our co-hosts, or any of our guests, please feel free to email the show at rippernet at mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week.